Hello and welcome to this latest edition of the Lakerside Chats. I am your host as always, Alan Ramich. Join with me today is a guest who is the senior writer for Bleacher Report on the NBA. He hosts the Full 48 podcast, which has just ended recently a few days ago. Uh, he's been on the New York Times. He's been in the LA Daily News. He's a contributor on Sirius XM on the NBA he is, in my opinion, one of the best people to go to for NBA analysis and content. Howard Beck, how are you, sir? Are you I'm doing up? very well. <laughs> very well, Alan. Thank you. And thanks for the nice intro. Appreciate it. No problem. So obviously nothing big has happened in the past few days in the NBA. Just the season <laughs> ending and the Lakers winning title number 17 or number 12, dependent on if you listen to <laughs> Bill Simmons or not. Um, just wanted to touch on the, this. What? Obviously, it's been a completely unprecedented season, uh, a season that obviously you've covered the NBA for so long, I don't think we'll ever see a season like this again, unless 2021 is even crazier. I hope not. Um, <laughs> so do I. But what did you make of the Lakers title run in general? What do you make of the NBA season? Um, and yeah, just, just want to get your first takes on how you saw the the, the, se the season transpiring, the playoffs and, and whatnot. Yeah. Well, I mean, so we're recording this on October 15th. And this, the strange thing about talking about the season that just ended right now is that it just ended right now. It's And it's October 15th. And normally this time of year, there would be maybe the tail end of preseason games, exhibition games, and the, the regular season would be starting a, like a week from now or, you know, a week and a half from now. So it's I'm still it still just messes with me um, that we that we just finished and we don't know when next season's going to even going to even start. Or what it's going to look like. Um, so the the strangeness of it all is still very much with us. The season's over, but we're still in this really weird space. And um, it's been dizzying. It's been remarkable. It's been impressive. Um, it, it it's just every everything across the spectrum from the shutdown in mid March through a few days ago when the Lakers won the championship. Um, you know. It's, it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. Kudos to, to Adam Silver and Michelle Roberts and the teams and everybody who worked on the season, the restart, getting the bubble underway, that they got through it all without a single positive test among NBA personnel is absolutely a, a remarkable achievement. Um, I think people even within the NBA didn't think that that was, not that they didn't think it was possible, but they didn't necessarily believe it would happen. There was a lot of skepticism and concern going in, and it was all justifiable skepticism and concern. But they pulled it off, and it's. I think it's a great example to everyone else out there that this this can be done. Um, you know, it was it was a finite number of days, though, and weeks. Uh, you know, ninety something days for those who were there start to finish. You can't do that for a full season. So whenever the NBA starts again, it's not like they could say, "Oh, let's just go do another bubble." Worked out great. No, not for eighty-two games, um, plus playoffs. It, it, it's not possible. So there's a great challenge still ahead of them, in terms of the. Actual basketball, I think if anybody, the, the first concern going into the bubble was safety, health, keeping the virus out. Mm -hmm. The second biggest concern was what's the basketball even going to look like? Everyone's been off for months. Some guys had no access to gyms. These teams haven't seen each other. What will their chemistry be like? How long will it take to get back to it? What's it going to look like when they play with no fans? What's how is that? What kind of impact is that going to then have on the quality of the games? Because you don't have the right environment to keep the intensity level up. Uh, again, all valid con concerns and questions going in. And again, they they hit high marks across the board. The basketball was legit. The competition level was at its at its highest. There was to me. If you could somehow, you know, eliminate the backdrop and the sounds of of, of crowds versus uh, fake crowd noise being pumped <laughs> in and all this, if it was just about the, the level of play and the intensity of it, it matched any other postseason. And that's not just me talking. Coaches would tell you that. Players would tell you that. Scouts would tell you that. It was absolutely, um, you know, a, a legitimate NBA postseason. And... Some weird things happened along the way, right? And some teams that had high hopes were eliminated earlier than you'd expect. But I don't think that that means there's any kind of caveats or an asterisk or any of, of, of that kind of nonsense. It did have an impact. It clearly affected some teams more than others. But uh, a team that was that was identified from day one as one of the top three teams 
in the Lakers won the championship. And I always said, going into the bubble, if the Lakers, Bucks, or Clippers win the championship, no one's going to, to bat an eyelash, except for people who might want to tear them down in the first place. But no one's going to say. It was going to be like, if the finals ended up being the Thunder versus the Pacers, then something would have gone horribly wrong <laughs> and people would be slapping asterisks all over the place. But that's not what happened. Uh, the team with the greatest player of his generation, potentially of all time, and another top five player led a team to the championship. I, I think we could say that that's a legitimate a legitimate run. Um, and yeah, kudos to the Lakers. Uh, they had a lot of new pieces to start the season. Um, they you know, were missing a key player in Avery Bradley mm-hmm. coming into the bubble, which was certainly a concern. Then they lost Rondo to injury. That was a concern. They had some guys who certainly had who were either unproven like an Alex Caruso or who had been basically left for dead like Dwight Howard. Um, even Rondo to an extent, you know, the, the, as much bouncing around as he had done in recent years. So to take that collection of players and that supporting cast and forge it into something that had fantastic chemistry, that had um, everybody performing, you know, really at, at their highest level, Again, uh, just just a, a phenomenal achievement. This was, you know, no championship is ever about the stars. We identify it with the stars more than anything, but the supporting casts matter a lot. And this was a supporting cast that had some some you know some concerns. There was some skepticism, including from me. And I think the skepticism again was justified at the time they brought them all together. You don't know how a team is going to coalesce or not, and this one coalesced beautifully. Well. Like you said, it, 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 there was certainly justifiable concerns with the with the uh, playing staff. Like you said, Dwight Howard coming in after Demarcus Cousins get, uh, getting hurt, and you know Dwight's reputation was not uh, golden by any stretch of the imagination before this um, stretch with the Lakers. And I think it wasn't a coincidence. You know, we were chatting a little bit about chemistry in a joking manner uh, <laughs> before the podcast started. Um, I don't think it was a coincidence that from the outside, the two teams, which I thought have the best chemistry as a team, obviously talent helps a lot in that situation. Both the Heat and the Lakers were incredibly talented. But the teams with the best chemistry, they were the closest to their coaching staff as well, I think, looking from the outside, were the ones that got to the finals. And like you said, I thought the competition between the two, especially games four and five, I thought were just phenomenal. I thought, like you said, I, I thought game five was probably the best game I've watched since the 2015-16 final series with uh, Golden State and Cleveland. I thought they were really phenomenal high-end games. Yeah. Um, the, the Those were intense, intense games. And, you know, to me, um, it it does – all all these things are related, right? I mean – Chemistry matters no matter the environment, normal season, weird season, whatever. Um, it it stands to reason that in a an environment like this with the bubble where you know guys are cut off from their families and friends, cut off from from real life, confined to a, a very small space within the Disney campus with no real freedom of movement. Um, I, I think I read where like the most they could do was maybe like a mile loop, mile and a half loop if you wanted to go out and take a run or a walk or something. I mean, that's really it's something. yeah, yeah, it's 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 really a I'm sure a disconcerting thing to. to be doing for week after week after week for, you know, for three months for those teams. And so it stands to reason that the teams with the best chemistry, um, the most uh, just uh, um, camaraderie, the best ability to to support each other would be the ones that would come through at the end. And look, talent has a lot to do with it too, right? Some teams went out early because of talent. Some teams went out early because the chemistry wasn't good enough. And did the bubble exacerbate that? Yeah, possibly. Hard to know. Um, what impact did the, the two day shutdown, the wildcat strike after the Jacob Blake shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin, what effect did that have on some teams? You know, the, the weight on these guys' psyches is something that I don't think we truly appreciate yet or truly understand yet. And I, I think in the weeks and months and maybe even years to come, we will learn more about just how difficult and challenging this environment was. And it's easy to say, eh, they're rich and famous and this and that, and they have people waiting on them hand and foot and all this stuff, and I could do that. It's no problem. Try cutting yourself off from family and friends in the world for 90-something days in a, in a, in a, a confined environment where you don't have access, you, 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 can't, you can't go to the store, you can't go to your corner coffee shop, you can't, you can't do anything. 
And the people that you're around are the same people every single day. It's not normal. And it, it is, would have an effect on any human being. And money does not solve that. And so I think the psychological effect on players, coaches, staff, everybody, I think that that was um, considerable. And I think it's more than we knew or understood. And I think there will be stories that come out in, in the weeks, months, years to come that, that give us a little bit better insight into that. And again, that's not to say that it has any impact on how we should view the championship or the legitimacy of any of it. It's just to say that it was a factor and, and dismissing it would be foolish. And I completely agree with you. Like, you know, as much as Laker fans like to have jokes and whatnot about, you know, if the Lakers didn't win, it wouldn't be legitimate or whatnot, you know. But I think I, I, I said it from the start, whoever wins this championship, I think is, I've, I, I've, I've said on record plenty of times. That I think this is the toughest championship to win precisely because of all the points that you've made so far. So whoever won this championship, unlike unless it was like a the Pacers type thing, like you said, I think I think every, I, it, it was a deserving title. Whoever won it, whichever way it went, whether it was the Bucks, the Lakers, the, the Clippers, the Celtics, he uh, Raptors, whoever it is, it would have been a deserving one. But to touch on the Lakers, because we are a Lakers podcast, um, I want to talk about AD in particular before we move on to LeBron a little bit. Um, I feel like this was AD's sort of coming out party as a big-time superstar to stay on the big stage. Because uh, I, AD's been this good in New Orleans, but I think he's taken a step up in the playoffs and... Being on that LA market, as you know, covering the Lakers as a beat writer, it's just a different thing, it, and especially for a basketball player playing for the Lakers. Well, the scrutiny and the pressure of being in that spotlight is at a, a whole other level, obviously. Um, and you know, it's not to say that being the franchise star in New Orleans for whatever seven years um, doesn't come with its own set of pressures. Of course, it does, um, but. Being in a major market is different. Being in LA is different. Being in LA and being a Laker is different because this is a franchise that's used to nothing but winning. Um, I've said, you know, to people, people um, cringe at this, but um, the idea of the Lakers being out of the playoffs for seven years, that's like 20 years to, you know, any other franchise, right? Like, like it's, it's it's championship or bust every year there. And the idea of not even making the playoffs at all, much less seven years in a row is it. And, and people in other markets can scoff at that and they do. And I get it, <laughs> but having lived there and having worked there and having covered that team for seven years, um, I understand too, that Lakers exceptionalism is real and you can take that as a positive or a negative. You can take that as pejorative <laughs> or whatever, but it's because they are spoiled by success. There's no question about it. And so um, when you walk into that as LeBron James or as Anthony Davis, it's okay, great. We're back in business. Um, championship tomorrow, fellas, just letting you know, it's, it's not enough. If, if those guys go, if LeBron James had left the Cavaliers and walked into Memphis, a, he would have been the greatest Grizzly of all time. The day he signed the contract and B just being in the playoffs and making a deep run would have been a thrill. They would have been perfectly happy if that, or if that had happened for the, for the Knicks for that matter, or the Timberwolves or any number of teams, it would have been enough just to get a player of that caliber um, in your team's Jersey and to, to be a respectable team and to make some playoff runs. That would be enough. You sign with the Lakers. It's okay, great. Let's let us know how many championships you're bringing. That's it. That is, that is the bar. <laughs> um, and so for Anthony Davis, it, 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 just replicating who he was in, in, in New Orleans, but doing it next to LeBron was already going to elevate him because now you've got another superstar, one of the greatest players of all time to play off of. Um, but I think doing it at that level or even higher um, was necessary and important to show I can do this when the stakes are highest. Um, and it's not to say it's easy to lead some flawed New Orleans teams all those years, but the stakes matter. The pressure matters. The spotlight matters doing it in the finals versus the conference finals versus the second round versus the, like all of that matters. It's all on a spectrum. And when you perform at the highest level, and then you can repeat that when the stakes continue to increase, it's showing you've get, you, you have that other thing. You have that other special element that separates guys who just put up big numbers and our stars in in the you know uh, you know colloquial sense 
but may not truly know uh, how to how to win at that level, how to how to really um, elevate yourself. And he did. And so Anthony Davis cemented all, all the stats that were already there. Great. Make a million all-star teams. But if you want to cement yourself among the all-time greats, then you got to perform in the finals. You got to win championships. Um, and he just did um, in, a, in spectacular fashion. And, uh, and he's got obviously many more great years to come. And uh, according to the reports by Shams Karania today from The Athletic, he's opting out of his contract to re-sign with the Lakers. So, Which is expected, of course. Absolutely, but it's also notable to because you can start planning for next season for LeBron and AD Season 2, which as a Lakers fan and as an NBA fan in general, having two players who fit in so perfectly, who play at such a high level, I think is just really exciting for the game in general. Um, that being said... I think, like I mentioned earlier, I think he has taken a step up during the postseason. I think there's been a sort, there's been a mentality shift in his game, which I know Charles Barkley took it to another level when he talked about it. Um, shout out to Charles Barkley; he's great to watch. Um, but I think there has been a mentality shift in AD's game where he has become, he's looked to be more of an alpha, and he talked about it in post-match interviews and how he needed to take the last shot, and you know, it's his and LeBron's team, which I think is really positive. A, from a Lakers point of view, because you see the succession plan sort of from LeBron to AD, and B, because it's like there's never enough superstars, in my opinion, in the NBA. So when you have another one who's on that world level, which AD is now, winning a championship with the Lakers elevates you to that. Um, I think from next season, especially if LeBron starts to, I won't say load manage, but sort of watch his minutes a little bit more and, you know, take certain nights off when he's playing like he did in Cleveland towards the end of his career. Yeah, AD being the engine of this team, I think could propel him into the MVP conversation next season with Giannis, with the James Hardens of the world, dependent on what happens now that Daryl Morey's left Houston. Um what do you think about that uh, AD standing within the game now and his overall outlook for next season whenever it does start? Yeah, so in your notes to me, you had said, you know, could he win MVP next year? And so I immediately, you know, jotted down a, a, a quick and dirty like MVP um, field for next season. And of course, so Anthony Davis, first he's competing with his own teammate in LeBron. You've got Steph returning and so a uh, strong narrative drive there too. If Steph revives the Warriors and puts them right back into, into contention with the numbers we know he can put up and he's a two-time MVP. Kevin Durant coming back from injury and depending on how that works out with the Nets. And then, you know, obvious suspects, Kawhi Leonard and Giannis. Um, Luka was already in the discussion. If the Mavericks elevate themselves and, and get, you know, strengthen the roster around him. Jimmy Butler, who has never really been part of MVP discussions, but, you know, he's going to get a bit of a... Uh, a, a a boost. There's going to be a, 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 you know, a lasting boost from the finals where now next season he'll be in that discussion from day one, as long as the heaters are, are as good as they've been. Harden is there every year. Siakam is, has the potential to flirt with that, that field, Jason Tatum, uh, Nikola Jokic. So like it's a, you know, it is wide field. It yeah. is potentially a very wide field. Um, the big one though, is Anthony Davis has to be identified by everybody as the best Laker. And I think that that's, I just don't know when that day comes. <laughs> it's not today. And it's not this past couple of weeks. Um, LeBron mm -hmm. won MVP of the finals by, by 11 zip. Um, so, you know, at some point, and, I, and people have talked about this for years, right? Um, Kareem late in his career, of course, seeds to, to Magic Johnson. Now, it also made sense anyway, because Magic's the one with the ball in his hands. In this case, it's the reverse. The older guy is the one with the ball in his hands in LeBron. As LeBron, so he turns 36 in December. As LeBron starts to move into his twilight years, which we thought was already happening, but clearly has not. <laughs> um, what what kind of game will he play? Because LeBron is built to be a power forward if he wants to be, and he could do he could have the ball in his hands less. He could play out on the perimeter, both offensively and defensively, less that which might then be less taxing. Um, so he could give up some control. But now you'll need another primary playmaker. Maybe you get a traditional point guard. I don't know. It's an interesting discussion to have. I don't know what I don't know what LeBron has thought of this. I don't know if, if he's really considered it or, or would share that publicly. But I think to the extent of that that AD has MVP potential, it's how much of the burden does is he taking on and how much is LeBron giving up? Because LeBron can say, 
oh, he's the focal point now. I'm the old guy. He's the young, he's the young buck. I'm going to feed him. I'm going to empower him. And he does. And, and LeBron has always been a team first guy and he's always been a great playmaker and has always elevated his teammates, especially the best among them. So it's not about LeBron's ego. It is about the fact that as long as he still controls the offense, as the engine of that offense, the orchestrator, people like me, I'm always going to think, well, he's the more important one. Even if AD had bigger numbers than LeBron, LeBron makes so much of it possible that I'm still going to lean toward LeBron as being the MVP of that team and therefore the better candidate overall in the NBA. So the, the, that is that is the downside to playing with LeBron James or playing with another top five player, period, is that Anthony Davis might not get that recognition. Kobe and Shaq won MVP each in the regular season, despite the fact that they're both among the all-time greats. And it's because during the years where they were both simultaneously at their peak together, they were splitting votes. They were drawing away attention from each other. Um, there were years where when I was covering those teams, and the Sacramento Kings were their greatest rival for part of that. And the, I thought the Kings were phenomenal. And Chris Webber, to me, was the most important part of that team. But they were viewed as an ensemble cast, right? It was Webber and Vlade and Mike Bibby and Paige. And so you couldn't you couldn't separate it out. And that happens sometimes. Either you're part of an ensemble cast, um, which, again, I think that's what Jimmy Butler has in, in Miami in a lot of ways. Um, or you've got another superstar with you and it's hard to decide which are, which of these guys are more responsible for their success. And so then you, as a voter, you lean toward somebody like Giannis, who it's clearly all about him without him. The, the bucks are nothing like he is the reason for their success. So, um, you know, that's just, that, that's, that's the way I process it. And I'm, I'm, I'm one of a hundred, you know, voters. So, you know, everybody's got their own way of, of looking at this, but I think that's, that's the difficulty for AD breaking through in that discussion. I completely get that. And let's just shift over to LeBron. Like you said, I, I thought he'd be slowing down by now. I thought this is it. I thought second season LeBron in LA would be, we'd see a guy who's still, I think top five, top 10 in the NBA, you know, but a guy who is heading towards the twilight of his career, but it's not been that at all this season. I thought defensively, this has been the most locked in he's been in years, in the regular and playoffs, um, especially before the bubble. I thought the regular season, LeBron, defensively, I thought he was phenomenal. Um, yeah, what can you say about LeBron that hasn't been said so far? Like, it's it's crazy that, in my opinion, he's still the best player in the world at 35, almost 36 years old. It it's It defies logic it defies physics it probably defies physiology i mean you're the scientist you tell me um, <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm speaking out of turn as an english major here but um what lebron is doing defies everything um 17 years in and on you know he's two months away from turning 36 years old you're not supposed to be this dominant this long you could still be great kareem was you can still be impactful you could still be an all-star you can still be you know top 20, top 30, whatever, you're not supposed to be in the MVP chase in your 17th season um, and in your mid-30s. It's just, and especially because he's got more miles than probably anybody at this stage in NBA history because he's been to 10 finals. So, you know, all the added games on top of being in the season, in the, in the league for 17 years, um, absolutely remarkable. Um, he is, he is a, a, um, I don't even, I don't even know how to, to classify him, but you know, he says he spends over a million dollars a year on his body, on, on, on training and nutrition and, and the, the equipment and whatever cryo chambers and God only knows. Um, he does a lot cause he knows that this is, this is, this is critical and especially the, the older he gets. Um, so a lot of this is just the product of his dedication and hard work and, and commitment to the game and to his body. And there's some good fortune in there too. You know, um, some injuries are just dumb luck. You know, I covered, uh, you know, in 2003, my last season on the Lakers, Carl Malone comes in, Carl Malone had missed, I don't think like four games his entire career or something, like some crazy number. Carl Malone was just an iron man, never got hurt. He gets hurt, uh, you know six weeks into the season because Scott Williams falls on his knee in an awkward way that injured Malone's knee. It wasn't because Carl Malone had a lot of miles on him, was old and, and got hurt because of age and, and uh, 
fatigue or anything. It was just, just a freak accident. Mm -hmm. LeBron's never had the freak accident aside from the groin injury last season. And that was the moment where people thought, okay, he's human after all, and this could happen. And oh, wait, maybe this is the beginning of the end. Maybe this is the indication that his body's going to start to fail him and that all those miles are adding up and are going and have taken their toll. Um, that was not the case, but I understand why people took the leap from there. They decided, well, this is it. We're, we're seeing the beginning of the end. And, you know, it's, um, you, you never know when that moment might come, right? You never know, you know, Kobe's Achilles injury, um, things like that, that you just, you can't see coming. You can't account for Kobe was maniacal about his body too. Still ended up with a bunch of really tough injuries his last five years in the league. So, um, LeBron combination of commitment and good fortune. How much longer can he do it is like a really fun question that people kick around. And it's just such a tough one because one, we're in an uncharted territory here. Nobody's done what he's done at this stage of their career in the first place. And beyond that, yeah, we can't account for these other things, right? You, you can't, there are a lot of things that just are, are, are beyond prognostication someone's physiology and what their body can take and how much longer it can go. Like that's just, LeBron doesn't know that his doctors don't know that we certainly don't know that. But I think at this point, what we can safely say is don't bet against him being able to extend for many more years, this level of play. Um, I, I would have once thought that that was not possible. He has shown that it is. And so I think the, the, the default at this point, the benefit of the doubt should be that, yeah, He'll be in the MVP running again next season and maybe even the year after that and the year after that. And maybe he does it all the way till 40, which would be absolutely mind blowing. <laughs> yeah. Um, with LeBron, and I just want to touch on uh, just one last person who I thought was incredibly important to this Lakers championship success. I think Frank Vogel, um, I don't know if you remember 18 months ago or so when Magic Johnson went on to first take and absolutely ethered the entire Lakers organization and Rob yes. Palenka. Um, Frank Vogel, ever since that day, when it was his introductory press conference of all days as well, I thought was really, really impressive in his first outing as, you know, being this face of the Lakers and being this coach, coaching presence. And then his rapport with LeBron and AD in particular and, uh, his coaching staff, I thought made really good adjustments throughout the entire playoffs. It was very slow adjustments. They didn't, bring everything out of the bag immediately. It was dependent on situation. It was a guy who a lot of people had forgotten about because of his two years in Orlando, and people just assumed that he'd never get another coaching role. Um, I don't get why, but it happens sometimes in the NBA. Um, what do you make of Frank Vogel and his success? Because I think that's been downplayed a little bit, but I think that's also been really, really important to the Lakers um, succeeding this past season. Yeah, um, Great to see Frank Vogel kind of get his due and to, you know, he's, he's somebody who is, um, just about the work. Like it's hard work and humility, right? Like you do, there's no ego there. It's not about him. Um, he didn't care that he was, you know, technically the third choice after Monty Williams and Ty Lue and that, you know, he got the job because the negotiations with those guys had faltered. Um, the Jason Kidd subplot that, uh, you know, many people thought would, would, you know, potentially get in the way and Jason Kidd being a, you know, a pretty domineering personality at times and a guy who has, you know, stirred it up here and there over the course of, of his career. Um, Frank Vogel just said, whatever. I'm just, you know, look, I, I, I'm all about the game. He's, he's, you know, uh, you know, somebody who just is, is, is fully immersed in the game came up the video coordinator route, you know, guy who comes out of the film room and then becomes, you know, an assistant coach and then a head coach in Indiana and I, I think that, you know, this happens, right? Like you alluded to this, you know, his two years in Orlando, everybody all of a sudden kind of dismisses him as, as a, a viable coach or as a, as a guy who, who should get another shot. Um, but the Knicks had been really interested in him, I think, before, I think it was the year they hired Hornacek. I think Vogel had been strongly in the running there. I think Phil Jackson had had strong interest in him. But his Pacers, you know, tenure, which was his first head coaching job, was really instructive. I mean, that was... A young team, um, a team with with not a lot of expectations that he inherited. That you know his his first year, um, I'm just pulling up his file. They go 28, 2018 after he takes over, 42 wins the next year, 49, 56, and they go to back to back conference finals against 
LeBron James's Heat super teams. And people forget, like, Paul George was, what, like 10th overall pick? And they've got an aging Danny Granger who had made one all-star team, or not aging, but, but got injured, and that kind of prematurely ended his career. Roy Hibbert, nobody was expecting much out of Roy Hibbert, who I think, again, was like the 17th overall pick or something, becomes one of the, the best big man defenders for that period of time in the league. It was an ensemble cast. It was, it was a you know, Paul George emerges as a star, but it wasn't a team that on paper looked like a contender. And Vogel did a phenomenal job, an unheralded job with them at that time. And, you know, Orlando's just been a, a, a you know, a dumpster fire for years preceding Vogel and, and after him. So I don't think it'd be fair to, to, to hold him to that. Every co- the, the, the lesson here, as it always is, is every coach needs talent to win. And, um, you know, it, it's, you, you can't dismiss a guy based on two years with a lousy roster. Um, there are things you can always point to and say, well, he didn't do this. He didn't reach this guy, or he didn't put this guy in the best position to succeed. Da, 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 da. We can get, we can overthink that stuff. Talent rules in this league period. Um, now if you have the talent and you can't win, maybe that's on you. Um, and you can have, um, scant talent and squeeze much more out of it than expected. Nate McMillan just did that very well for the last several years in Indiana. And thanks for it was getting fired anyway. Um, (laughs) But you were still beholden to your talent. And I think what Vogel did masterfully was um, understood right off the bat. This team is about LeBron and Anthony Davis. It's not about me. It's not about my staff. It's not, it's, it's about, we, we have to win championships and we have the talent to do it because we have the best player in the game and another top five player. And let's just figure out the best way to get uh, the rest of this group to, to rise to the challenge and, and fill, fill their roles. And he set out from day one and made defense the priority. They ended up being one of the best defensive teams in the league. Um, certainly, you know, whether, whether by his hand, or by LeBron's hand, LeBron had one of his best defensive seasons in a long time. You alluded to it earlier that he actually went all out from, from the get-go instead of waiting for the playoffs. Um, they prioritized the right things. They they set the right tone, um, and, and Vogel deserves more credit than he will probably get because it'll be looked at as, well, you you had the good fortune of standing near LeBron. And I think that's the way Frank Vogel likes it as well, listening to his podcast with yeah. Zach Lowe and stuff. He likes being the understated guy who just get some of his job and, you know, let his players get all the plaudits. He'll do his job from the sidelines and that's it. And I think the culture that's being set out, I know you had Jeannie Buss on a few weeks back. Um, I think the culture that's being set out within the Lakers organization from Jeannie to Rob to Frank and then collaborating with LeBron and AD, it seems to be a very, as the Lakers have always been, it's a very player-centric franchise. And even more so now, especially with these big superstars that they do have, it's it's all about collaboration. And I think Frank Vogel seems to be the perfect coach for that as well. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that if there were any doubts, I think winning the championship in year one and, 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 um, you know, fostering a great relationship with the stars, I think that that, you know, that now entrenches him. Now you don't worry. But now you go into year two, there won't be any questions about Jason Kidd and a possible coup, right? There won't be any doubts about his ability to form a, a great partnership with LeBron or Anthony Davis. Um, and I think, look, the challenge for Frank Vogel and his staff next year might be higher um, because even if LeBron can continue this forever, there is going to be some erosion year to year. Um, defending a championship is often harder than winning the first one. They do have some, and we can talk about this, they do have some, obviously some key roster decisions to make and they've got some age issues with the rotation. So trying to replenish and then getting whoever you've brought in to replenish to do what this last group did, find their best role, play it to the hilt, fit in, um, you know, make the, the, the parts, make, make the team better than the sum of its parts. Like that's the challenge again, the next time through. And so, you know, that'll be a different test for Frank Vogel. And like you said, I think the challenge now for the Lakers is getting players to, if players like a Rondo or a KCP or Dwight Howard leave in free agencies, how do you replace these players and keep up the same type of chemistry, uh, make sure everyone is still familiar with their roles and is, you know, 100% committed to that role? Um, 
it will be a very interesting off season and one that obviously is unprecedented as well as the season beforehand because COVID and the salary cap situation, no one particularly knows what it will look like. Um, with the Lakers, I think uh, I think the guard rotation is a big one because obviously you have Rondo entering free agency, you have KCP entering free agency, Avery Bradley also potentially entering free agency. That's three very key contributors from that uh, guard rotation. And you have Markeith Morris, who was a buyout candidate. You have Dwight, who was on a one-year deal. JaVale, who has a player option as well. Like you said, there could be a lot of turnover. Um, where do you see this Laker team going? Obviously, it's still very early within after the season, but I, I think it'll be a miss not to ask you, like, do you see a lot of the same guys returning? Obviously, once you win a championship, the price of certain players for other teams goes up, so like we've seen it you know, in previous years with likes of Matthew Delavadova going to Milwaukee and whatnot. Yeah. Um, how do you see, how do you envision this uh, Lakers rotation holding up with free agency looming? Yeah, I mean it's it's really early to speculate. It's it's hard to know. Um, you know, you you alluded to, to Sham Sharania from the Athletic earlier, but one of his other reports today was that you know the Lakers and Dwight would like to st- to 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 um, you know stay together, but that Dwight will also have interest from the Warriors, which I think would be a really interesting fit as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean it, it's look, we don't know what the salary cap is is going to be for sure. We don't know what the luxury tax line is going to be for sure. We don't know how the league is going to manage all of the, the the loss of revenue from the pandemic and how that's going to affect teams' maneuverability. But the Lakers, you know, are over the cap, probably you know, almost certainly will be regardless of what any of these players do. So it's not like they're going to have a lot of ability to go out and get guys except with their, their, their cap exceptions. So, but that's often, you know, that's always the case, almost always the case with championship teams in this league. You're almost always way over the cap and into tax territory and counting on guys wanting to take pay cuts to jump on, especially veterans who want to make a championship run. And so that, you know, look, (laughs) it's LA and it's the Lakers and it's the chance to play with LeBron and it's the chance to contend for titles. Like they will get guys who will, who will come cheap. I can't tell you right now, as we sit here, who that will be, but they'll, they'll get some guys. They'll get some, they'll get some bargains. They're an attractive place to be. Um, I'll be curious just, you know, how these players make their decisions. Like if, if Avery Bradley opts out, you know, he missed, he missed the bubble for family reasons. So he, he gets his ring, but he didn't get to be part of the championship run. Um, at, at those, you know, those key moments, does, does he want to come back because he wants to be part of the title defense? You know, how much do, you know, your, your competitive juices and your emotions come into play here? Rondo's now won, you know, championships with the Celtics and the Lakers. Um, Does he want to, you know, jump to and try to win one with the Warriors or something? I I, I don't know. Like what, what does Rondo want from his career at this stage? Um, Does he come back? Um, you know, uh, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, they've got bird rights on. They can keep them if they want them. Markeith Morris, Dwight Howard, Deion Waiters. I mean, I'd like, you know, some of these guys are more important than others, but there'll, you know, out of that group, there'll be some movement. There there obviously will be. Um, I think at a glance, I'd say they could use some guard help. You know, uh, you know, I know Laker fans are pretty frustrated with Danny Green and, and you know, there's, you know, whether it's shooting or whether it's defense at the wings, I think they need some help in in those areas. Now, didn't you know there was that was one of the common themes of of the bubble was well will, will the Lakers guard core hold up against Lillard and McCollum against Jamal Murray against whoever else you know against you know the, the you know against Westbrook and Harden that was always a concern and, and look they played great team team defense and they got enough doesn't mean that those weren't legitimate concerns and and going into next season I, I'm sure that's something that they would look to to shore up if you can find the right guys to plug in. And it's it's like you said, especially not knowing the scope. I think it is a little bit early, but like I said, I would have been, uh, I wouldn't have felt right if I didn't ask you about it. And um, before we move on to the last topic that I want to touch on, you have been receiving a little bit of hate, should I say, a, a slander, as the kids call it nowadays, um, because of a fifty-five second clip that just emerged out of the pipeline that I'd never seen before personally until Ice Cube's son. O'Shea Jackson Jr. Um, retweeted it onto the, my timeline. Um, yeah, I know you've had experiences with the Lakers uh, fan base before. 
But what do you make of all of it? Because I was I was looking at it and I was like, okay, I understand some of the slander and some of the criticism flying around. But for that video in particular, I, I really, really didn't understand it. Yeah, thanks, uh, Ice Cube Jr. Um, <laughs> although I will say, even before O'Shea Jackson Jr. retweeted and called out for his followers to basically, you know, uh, light my mentions on fire on Twitter, even before that, I had been getting like that was there was a delay. So like he did that on whatever day that was um, like two, three days before that, I'd had a first wave that was not sparked by him. So uh, at Bleacher Report, I do uh, this 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 video feature called Spotlight. Spotlight, is, it, it lives mostly on Instagram, so it cannot exceed a minute. It has to be under a minute. So they're usually like 50, 55 seconds. And it's just me talking over some B-roll, over some, you know, game clips or whatever. And they, they spruce it up. They add a little soundtrack and everything. Our social media team does all this fun stuff with it. I just write the script and I and I and I give it and they they do all the magic. So week to week, it may be you know about anything. It may be the MVP race. It may be about um, you know whatever whatever the the issue of the week is. A year ago, last October, when we were in the preseason going into the nineteen twenty season, it was the usual. Hey, for spotlight this week, why don't you pick the champion? Who's your who's your favorite? And by that point. Like a lot of people, I thought this is a three-way race this year. It's it's, it's probably the Bucks in the East, although I was never fully sold on the on the Bucks, and I'm I'm all over the record on that one. I was always had some skepticism about the Bucks, but it, but the the consensus favorites, whether in Vegas or among the punditry, was Bucks, Lakers, Clippers, and in the West, I thought pretty much a coin flip between those two, and I didn't really consider anybody else. The Jazz weren't there. The Nuggets, with all due respect, I didn't think were there. I did not believe in the Rockets throughout and certainly not after they added Westbrook instead of Chris Paul. So to me, it was absolutely a two team team race in the West and they were both in LA. And I, like a lot of people, I leaned Clippers, not by a long shot, by any stretch, not, not um, definitively, but I thought uh, Kawhi and Paul George in today's NBA, when, you know, wing defense and, uh, and, and, shot creation from the, from that position, from, from the wings, from the forward positions is so critical. I mean, look at who's won MVP of the finals in recent years, Kawhi in, in Toronto and in San Antonio, of course, LeBron in Cleveland and Miami before that, Kevin Durant in Golden State two years in a row. Like, what do these guys have in common? They're all like freaks right. of nature yeah. who are small forward by definition or, or by, by category, but really are much more than that. And they're, they're, you know, creators and shot makers and can play defense at an incredible level. And so now the, the Clippers had two of them in Kawhi and Paul George. Paul George obviously a cut below those guys, but Paul George still a legitimate star who also does a lot of things um, at that position. So you take the two of them, you graft them onto a team that won 48 games with no stars at all. And yeah, that that's a pretty great formula. Plus they had Doc Rivers, who was a proven championship coach. Um, and in general, once you know, it's it's a it's a really big thing to say. Well, if you took the two guys off, two best guys off the board, so I'm not saying that lightly. But after LeBron and AD on one side, and after Kawhi and Paul George on the other side, three through eight on the Clippers were, I think, a better group, a stronger group than three through eight on the Lakers. Again, not a controversial position. <laughs> like no. I think everybody around the NBA would agree with that. Almost all scouts, GMs, coaches would say, yeah. The Clipper group was stronger on paper three through eight than what the Lakers had, in part because they had two perennial sixth man of the year candidates, Lou Williams and Montrose Harrell, who also play brilliantly together. And the Lakers just didn't have, there wasn't that third guy. It, who else was going to generate offense? Who else was going to be able to put up 25 on a night that LeBron was off a little or AD was in foul trouble or something? And Laker fans kept screaming Kuzma, which clearly was not the case. Um, the Lakers did not have a, a readily identifiable third option. The Clippers did, and they had guys who'd won 48 games with no stars at all. So I leaned Clippers for the sake of that video, because you can't look, I've just been talking for probably four minutes on this subject. There's a bunch of nuance in that discussion. I can't do that in 55 seconds and a, and, and a video in which you pick the champion in which you're asked specifically for a prediction. You can't go, well, it could be the Bucks, might be the Lakers. I mean, hey, look, maybe the Rockets will get hot at the right time. Or, hey, look, maybe the Raptors will figure out how. 
No, like that doesn't work. It's a 55 second video to pick the champion. And if you equivocate, also you're going to get backlash from people saying, well, make up your damn mind. You can't, you got to pick somebody. You're just, you're, you're, you're chickening out. So you make your pick. Um, in any time I was on radio or podcast or anything all throughout the season, starting last, probably even before October, so even over the summer, anytime this came up, I would say Lakers and Clippers, I could see either one coming out of the West. They both could win the championship. If I have to pick, I lean Clippers a little because of the reasons that I just went over. And that's it. But for the sake of a 55 second video, it's got to be more definitive and, and a little punchier. So that goes up October 19th or whatever it was of, of 2019. Trust me when I say this. Trust me when I say this, Alan. I make these videos and they go up and there's like a, you know, it immediately becomes a, a shit show in my mentions with all these people reacting and they're all mostly because they're all screaming at each other, not even reacting to me. They're all screaming at each other. <laughs> um, and and I, I have a good chuckle. I play it back once to see how it sounded once they put in the music and all that other stuff. And then I completely forget about them. And I have no idea what I even did by the end of the season. So when somebody resurfaces one of those 12 months later and goes, Hey Beck, what about this? Or this you and all like the, the, all these, these retorts that they think are <laughs> clever, but are like completely cliche and like 500 other people have already done it. Um, I'm like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I made that. I forgot about that. Whatever. <laughs> I don't care. Like, this is the thing people need to understand. Um, like I'm primarily a writer and then I'm a podcaster and I play pundit a little bit. I'm not a first take guy. I'm not around the horn guy. I'm not, I don't sit there every day making wild declarations and Sweet trying to words. come up with the, 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 you know, hottest take or the uh, most um, provocative take on anything. That's just not, that's not me. I'm just not who I am. Um, but in this position, you make predictions sometimes. And I don't care if they're right or not. I don't care if they come true. Like I truly do not. I'm not, you know, it's, I don't think it's ethical for a reporter covering the NBA to gamble on the NBA. So I certainly am not, I have nothing at stake in that regard. I'm not a fan of any of these teams. So I have no stake in that regard. Picking the Clippers doesn't mean I now have something at stake. Cause a lot of it was that it was people crowing like, ah, what do you got to say now? Well, nothing. <laughs> if they'd won, I'd have nothing to say either though. Like I don't, I don't care. It it has no impact on my life one way or the other. It's it's you make a prediction because it's fun to make a prediction. And when I'm right, I don't run victory laps either. And if I'm wrong, I'm like, okay, oh, and um, you know, I I I it's it's a strange thing. And I will say it's a much more recent phenomenon that people do this thing where they want to resurface an old tweet or an old video or a soundbite and 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 bat you over the head with it because it didn't turn out the way you said it would. That's new. Like that wasn't two years ago. That wasn't happening five years ago, 10 years ago, even in the social media age that we've been in for, for over a decade now, this is a new thing. This is some weird subset of fans who, who, who that's what they live for. Now they just want to come beat you over the head with something and show that, that you got it wrong. Um, there are much more important things for people to be, to be worrying about getting it right or wrong. Like say predicting the trajectory of a worldwide pandemic or when it will be controlled or, um, you know, when we'll get it, 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 those things are more important. And even within sports, I would say if I came out and this is a, a huge distinction I want to make too. Some people wrote off LeBron and wrote off the Lakers. I never did. If you're somebody who said LeBron James will never win a title in LA or LeBron James will never win a, a title again, or LeBron James will never be an MVP again, or LeBron James is already done because of X, Y. And there are those people out there. If you say that and LeBron's still playing at an MVP level, yeah, by all means, remind those people that they wrote him off too soon because that's a big leap in the first place. Mm -hmm. But when you're predicting a championship, when you're when someone's saying like who's going to win it all this year, which is like what we do in sports, that's just a discussion point. It's there's nothing important behind it. It's not the same as definitively saying this team is out or this player will definitely go to this team. Like those are the kind of predictions that are more about information and about the ability to actually know there is no ability to know if we knew we wouldn't watch the games. We didn't see the warriors coming the year. They won their first championship. One person ESPN employs like 50 people covering the NBA and Ethan Sherwood Strauss was the only one who picked the warriors to win it all. And I was probably mocked at the time and was the only one who was, who was right. Did, were the other 49 people dumb? 
No. Do they, or does it mean they don't understand basketball? No. It's just sometimes you can't see it coming. That's why we watch the games. So um, it's bizarre. And I'll just add this because I did say it in a tweet back to Ice Cube Jr. Um, this is beneath the Lakers and their fans to, to crow about. Or You don't need victory laps. You're one of the most storied franchises in all of sports, to say nothing of, of the NBA itself. One of the most storied franchises in all of sports. And you just won your 17th title or, you know, 12th in L.A. plus the five in Minneapolis. You know, <laughs> Bill Simmons has his fun with that. Um, I was there when they raised the Minneapolis banner, by the way. Like that was back during my my time on the beat. So uh, it, it's funny because that was a, an inflection point where they didn't really acknowledge the Minneapolis era that much until I don't remember which year it was, but they they did. They raised a banner with the five Minneapolis titles that hadn't been there before. So the people who are are, are like having fun with that, like there's a little bit of a case to be made because even the Lakers themselves did not really acknowledge the Minneapolis years for a long time. Anyway, that's a tangent, but um, I, I said this. So the Lakers do not raise division banners and I, I, I respect them for that. There is no banner worth raising except for championship banners and retired jerseys. So they don't do division banners. They don't do celebrations for anything other than championships. So they don't, they don't need to run victory laps or do I told you so's or, or, you know, concern themselves with the fact that the Clippers had a lot of people picking them. Like the Clippers put together legitimately a legitimate title contending roster. Why they lost in the second round instead could be any number of factors. We could go into a whole other half hour on that, which I don't think we'll, we'll probably do. Um, I don't much care <laughs> one way or the other. I would have liked to see them in the conference finals because that was the head to head matchup. Everybody wanted to see everyone wanted to see Lakers versus Clippers, preferably all at Staples center. So we could have all spent two solid weeks in LA. <laughs> um, that didn't happen. And you know, uh, the Clippers, there are all kinds of reasons why their, their chemistry, uh, was not where it, it needed to be. Um, but it doesn't, you, you can't retroactively say that it was wrong to, believe they were a contender or wrong to pick them based on their talent. Anybody or anybody who is, uh, plays in coaches in works around this league understood what their potential was. And the rest of it, when it comes to preseason is a hunch. You're like, you look at the landscape, you look at who teams have, you weigh in everything, chemistry, talent, um, continuity, all of these things. And then you go, yeah, I think it's probably that team understanding all along that you don't know. And you make a prediction that, again, in my case, I don't really care much about once it's out there. I just feel like that needed to be said. Um, <laughs> it's just appreciate the time for the rant. No, it's fine. Uh, honestly, like I think the the pandemic has not helped um, with 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 all this going on because I feel like there's been a spike ever since people have been in their homes more and on social media more. The people um, have like just lost their minds. <laughs> Like we all have. <laughs> yeah. But like, get a grip, Laker fans. Like just be, I, and this is not just to Laker fans too, by the way. I would say this to a lot of fan bases. Like you root because it's fun to root and you, you're you happy when your team wins, you're sad or frustrated or angry when they lose, whatever. But sports is supposed to be fun. If you're channeling all your energy toward either crapping under their fan bases or doing these I told you so type tweets or whatever, I don't I, like, I just don't get it. I mean, I was a sports fan once upon a time. I mean, I'm still like a fan broadly, but I'm not a fan of teams. I don't root for teams. I like, I'm way beyond that because of what I do for a living. But I, I had my teams once upon a time. I don't remember ever being angry at somebody for picking against my team. That's really strange to me. That's just a bizarre concept. Uh, sports is supposed to be fun. And when your team wins, the most important thing is that your team won. It's exactly. not, it's the, the most important thing is not that they proved somebody wrong. It's that they won. Like that should be enough. The rest of it is nonsense. Well, I can tell you for a fact on Sunday or Monday morning at 4 a.m., I did not care about the Clippers, the Heat, yeah. the Bucks. I just cared about the Lakers winning number 17. And like you said, do some of the videos give me a chuckle when I see people, you know, <laughs> saying LeBron is wants to be a 6'8 Kevin Hart? Yeah, it does because it's ridiculous. But at the same time, you just have to take it for what it is. It's shock factor takes, like you said. It's something that, you know, some people resort to because they have to. They have to create content every day for their TV shows. And I understand that. But, like, we shouldn't paint everyone with the same brush as well, which I think was the biggest thing here. I think everyone just sort of went out and tried to find everyone who discounted the Lakers instead of looking at 
this is a really fun team who has a really good i thought had a ton of great storylines that we haven't touched on in this podcast you know the redemption arc of dwight howard uh, lebron still being great ad ascending um this rondo being the first guy to win a title in boston and la uh Caruso being a really, really valuable contributor to a title team, even though everyone was saying he's just a meme, was great as well. Um, it was a really fun f- team to, to watch and analyze and obviously support for being a Lakers fan. Um, and I feel like people should just focus a little bit more on that. And I'm sure you're in the same boat as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, listen, I've, I've, I've talked about this quite a bit, including on my own podcast, but LeBron joining the Lakers was just such an amazing moment. But as you well know, and I certainly know, it doesn't matter how great you are in the all-time pantheon if you don't win there. Like LeBron's three championships mean nothing to Laker fans. Again, it goes back to my analogy about if LeBron had joined the Grizzlies on day one, he's the greatest Grizzly of all time. You join the Lakers and it's like, all right, but man, uh, yeah, well, LeBron, hey, uh, nice to meet you. Welcome to LA. Go get in line behind Kobe and Magic and Jerry West and Shaq and Kareem. Like that's like, cause that's what they have. That's the legacy they have. And it's like, you may be, you may go down in the books as better than all of these great Lakers as an NBA player, as a basketball player, but not as a Laker. And if you want to be among the all-time great Lakers, you got to win here. Your titles in Miami and Cleveland don't mean anything. So um, him winning it is friggin' huge. And, and that's something to celebrate. That's something to be happy about. And especially, you know, like we haven't even talked about Kobe, but you know, this in the year that, that we lost Kobe Bryant and as devastating as that was for the franchise, for Jeannie Buss, for the players, for Rob Palenka, clearly, and for the fans at large, you know, at that time immediately. And I cringed a little bit because I didn't like the idea of like, oh, they're going to win it for Kobe. Like it felt a little trivializing to me um, and a little contrived, but there's a real element of it too. But that discussion started almost immediately afterward. Well, they actually did do it. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't change the tragedy, but it it does from a, just a, a, a you know, a, an emotional perspective, um, it just, it, it had that added gravity. Like it's not, it's not the first thing you think about with them winning the championship, but it, but it is sewn in there somewhere. And his name was invoked how many times in the immediate aftermath. And, and I think for good reason. So there are so many ways to appreciate this championship, whether it's LeBron getting his fourth and his first as a Laker cementing him with the Laker greats or Anthony Davis getting his first or the redemption arcs that you alluded to with some of those players or, or Kobe's memory, or Jeannie Buss becoming the first woman owning an NBA team to win a championship as, as, the, as the, the controlling owner. There's so much else about it. And plus just the basketball itself. It was a you know, great series, despite you know, the Heat obviously were banged up, and that, that took a little bit out of it. But, um, and the bubble. Like all of these things, these are so many, so many great things to, to celebrate and appreciate about it. The last thing you should be concerning yourself with in the immediate aftermath, my God, hours later within, you know, minutes, I think in some of these is whether other people believed your team could do it. Like that's small time, man. That's like, that's the mentality. I won't even pick a team. Cause then I'll start. I'll, I'll sound like I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm like ripping one of these small markets, but that's, that's, that's the kind of mentality I often hear from smaller market teams and their fans where they feel very overlooked and put upon because they're in the shadow of the glamour franchises. When you are the glamour franchise, you can't play the no one respected us card. I'm sorry. (laughs) And I agree with you. I think, um, like you said, picking between the Lakers and Clippers is understandable. Uh, I I had my reservations, even though I never said it publicly, but I think privately you do have your reservations about that type of stuff because the talent level, like you alluded to, um, was was on both teams, but in particular in the Clippers, I think, like you said, free throughout, I think they were better. I'm not saying all all five of those six of those guys were better, but on a whole, I think they were a better outfit. Um, obviously, chemistry and other issues that I think we'll find out eventually from that team, and that took its toll. But you know, like like you said, just enjoy the championship. And um, I just want to round off this whole conversation. Like you said, we haven't talked about Kobe much um, on every podcast that I do, especially when it's a new guest that comes on who hasn't talked about this before. I always ask people for their favorite Kobe moment, and obviously, you covered Kobe for the start of his career in LA and through the three championships and 
I just wanted to get your favorite Kobe moment. It doesn't have to be a basketball one. It can just be, you know, a moment that you had with him and whatnot. Because, you know, this is a guy who, like you said to Laker, just from Genie down, the fans, Rob Palinka was his best friend. Gianna was his goddaughter. You know, it, like you said, it's entrenched everywhere. So I think it's a really pertinent point to bring up in every podcast. So what is your favorite Kobe Bryant moment? Yeah, this is a tough one. I mean, um, you know, I, was, I, I, I started covering the Lakers in 1997. So my first year was his second year in the league. Um, I was there through 2004, so through the, the loss to the Pistons in the finals and the trade of Shaq and the breakup of, of that dynasty. Um, so a lot happens in seven years. And then, of course, I still, you know, in, in all the years I've been in New York, uh, whenever the, the Lakers and Knicks intersected or whatever, whenever I was at other events where I, you know, I saw Kobe, you know, I still I, I covered the, the, his, the, the three straight finals that he was in with Pau Gasol and, and those championships. So there've been a lot of things along the way, whether it's on the court or off. So it's 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 hard to pick out one. So I'm I'm just gonna I'll hit a few things that always come to mind immediately. Um, game four of the 2000 finals against the Pacers. That's the one where Shaq fouls out in overtime, and Kobe had missed the prior game with a really severe ankle injury. You know, he had to be carried off the court and he was, you know, you know, came into the arena on Shaq's back for, I think it was like the off day or maybe shoot around and missed game three. And if they lose game four, I think that was going to be, so I think they were up two one, so it would have been two, two. And now you're, you know, going to a best of three series. Um, and, and Kobe at that time, I think was 22, 22. And up until that moment, you know, people think about him now and they just think like he was always at this level and, and that it was all, it was all a foregone conclusion, but it wasn't his first couple of years in the league. He really had to earn his way into the rotation, into the starting lineup. Um, and there were, there was, there were the flashes of greatness, but a lot of doubts. The moment that he secured that game with a, a bunch of key plays in overtime game four of the 2000 finals after Shaq fouls out, it's Kobe doing it. It's not Kobe riding on Shaq's coattails. It's Kobe saving the day. It's Kobe saving that series. And a, a couple of spectacular uh, moments, including this kind of like behind the back tap in put back of a Brian Shaw miss. Um, and that was the moment where you said, there it is. There's his Jordan moment. And I, may, I remember writing about it at the time. I think the next day I wrote the off day story about this idea that like, okay, Kobe Bryant just established it. It's not just flash. It's not just that he talks like Michael. It's not that he's just he's trying to pattern himself and his game after Michael. He just he just played in a way, in a clutch way. Um, and, and again, we talked about this earlier. It's one thing to put up numbers in regular season games or playoffs, but the finals is a different thing. And like that was the moment where it was like, yep, the kids got it. And so that one always stands out. Of course, the you know a series before that, the lob to Shaq in Game Seven against the the, the Trailblazers, um, in the conference finals, like that one is is a huge one. Um, you know, off the court, there's I, I always tend to think of just these kind of more human moments that were just you know just back and forths, just or just just little conversations on the side. Um, and the, the, these two were both in probably his first or second season. I, I can't remember exactly when, but we, he has, there's a day at practice where one of the assistant coaches from lower Marion high school, where he had played, had come to visit Kobe and visit Laker practice. They're practicing at LA Southwest college back in those days. They didn't have their own practice facility yet. And I remember, um, people just milling about afterward. And there was a lot less media back then pre internet boom and pre social media, and so there were days where it was just the beat writers. And so it was calmer. So Kobe introduced me to this assistant coach whose name I'm sorry is escaping me at the moment and says, this is the guy who taught me not to pass, which I, I just thought was hilarious. Like Kobe was self-aware enough and also at that stage, self-deprecating enough to be able to make a joke about the idea that, yeah, I'm a, I might be a ball hogger or people perceive me that way. So that was, that was funny. And I just, I loved that because it just, it did, it showed a certain self-awareness on his part. Um, and then there was another moment, maybe that same season, cause they were still at the forum and the forum, you know, they're, they're, they, they practiced there into like part of the preseason in 99 before moving to Staples. So, you know, somewhere in that range, 97, 98, maybe the 99 lockout year. And so we would go in there for, you know, sometimes on the off day practice, we would do interviews in there, which doesn't happen anymore. And I go in to sit down next to Kobe 
to chat with him. The locker room TV is, I don't know if it was the Masters, but some golf tournament was on. And Kobe says, Howard, man, do you golf? I said, uh, I said, no, never, never have. You know, do you? And at that time, like a lot of players had picked it up. Like that was the, that was the era when, when players, NBA players were really starting to get into golf. Um, and, he, and I, so when I asked, you know, so do you? And he says, nah, I, I would, I would never play something I couldn't master. Something like that. It was something to that effect or not something that I couldn't, that I couldn't perfect or something. And I said, you can, you can master basketball. And he's like, absolutely. Like that was, you know, that was the confidence early on. Like in basketball, of course, this very much this is a game that relies on your teammates and relies on, on, on all these different elements coming together and is different from one second to the next. And so much is out of your hands. So the idea that you could perfect it or master it, like only Kobe would be so audacious as to say that he could. And of course, as we now know, like that's, that's how he was wired, that he was dedicating himself to master every move he could and to, um, perfect everything within his game, perfect everything that was within his control and, and, and worked on it, you know, maniacally. So, um, so those are a couple of the off court ones that stand out. Those were, especially the one that you just said about, he couldn't master the game of golf. I am surprised he thought like that because he went out and tried to master playing the piano in three weeks, according to Vanessa Bryant. So I, I don't know why he thought golf was somehow out of the reach for him. I, I don't, I don't know. It was an interesting line to draw, right? Yeah. Like, you know, playing the, learning to play the piano in three weeks, that's attainable, but golf, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe it was just with, within sports, you know, he saw it differently, you know, maybe, maybe he could only do a sport that he could master. Maybe he didn't need to master piano or master filmmaking or storytelling. But, um, when it came to sports and competition, it needed to be something that he thought he could do at the absolute highest level. And he clearly felt more confident about basketball than golf at that stage. <laughs> I don't know if he ever did try to take it up. So just the soccer and basketball then for him. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been a, an awesome, awesome, awesome conversation, Howard. I, I really want to thank you for coming on. Uh, obviously, there it's a bit of flux right now with you and, you know, the 48 podcast is ending. Uh, where can the people find your great work and your great podcasts? I know it's still a bit pending, but obviously, yes. uh, where can they follow you and whatnot? Yeah, no, thanks for asking. So yeah, I'm uh, parting ways with Bleacher Report within the next uh, month or so. There's there's still a little time left uh, on my contract there. But uh, the podcast has uh, has concluded the full 48. And so um, when I have something to announce about my next place of employment, which I imagine will probably involve some of the same things I've always been doing, some writing, some podcasting, some multimedia, um, I will certainly announce it on Twitter at Howard Beck, but not everybody's on Twitter. So if you're not on Twitter and you want to um, get, you know, be, be notified immediately when, th when things are ready, when I'm ready to launch the new things, um, I have set up a website, howardbeck.com, and you can enter your email address there. It's just a one-page site. You go on, you enter your email address. I'm compiling like a, a mailing list. And as soon as I know what the next podcast will be, where it will be, what it will be called, because I can't take the name with me either. Um, I will uh, I will announce it all via Twitter and via uh, email directly if you uh, want to take the time in a couple minutes and a couple seconds even and sign up at howardbeck.com. I've, I've for one signed up. And if you don't listen, if you haven't listened to all the full 48 podcasts, especially the ones with Jeannie Buss and Lawrence Tanter, the Lakers PA guy, I'd highly recommend it. Um, like all of them, I think you do a really phenomenal job and I'm really appreciative of you coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you again. No, thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the conversation. This was a lot of fun. Great questions. Um, you know, uh, definitely uh, always a lot to discuss um, when it comes to the Lakers. They are, uh, I don't I don't know what we in the media would do without them, frankly, um, <laughs> or what we would do without LeBron. Like we need him to never retire. <laughs> like I think like 80% of our stories will just be going with him the day that he decides to uh, move on to something else. But, uh, but no, thanks for having me. This has been fantastic. Appreciate all the, the kind words as well. And uh, yeah, folks uh, hit me up on Twitter at Howard Beck or sign up at, at, at howardbeck.com and um, we will uh, see you when the next thing launches. And I hope we can do this again sometime in the future. For sure. Thank you. Thank you for everyone for listening. Be sure to leave a five-star review. Look after yourselves. Take care.